What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. The future of leadership isn't one that relies on followers mindlessly doing what they're told. In fact, having employees that mindlessly do what they're told isn't going to lead to a high-performance organization. Finding flexibility in an increasingly rigid corporate environment is going to be what leads to better talent outcomes and better organizational performance. That's what the author of Leading Like a Gen Xer, Robert DeFinis, has to say, and that's Dr. Robert DeFinis, Dr. D, if you're, if you're a tight basis there. So what's Robert's story? Let's talk about it a little bit. He has worked with children, athletes, coaches, teams, leaders, and organizations for over 20 years while consistently leveraging optimal performance strategies into success stories. He has a diversified background with extensive experience in education, nonprofit leadership, law enforcement, and behavior analysis, which has gained him praise and recognition from organizations such as Smart CEO and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. He's a Philly native and uh, has spent time in both law enforcement and is now in higher education. He has a varied background, which has informed his leadership and talent development strategy. Robert? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Your perspective is pretty unique that you bring to the show, especially the intersection between your law enforcement experience and now your leadership experience uh, in higher ed. What I'd like you to do is get the audience up to speed on some of the things that I left out of your bio that you feel is going to be important for them to connect with you about that's going to inform this conversation. I, I think he captured it very well. I, to fill in the gaps there, I would have to say it is a diversified background. I started in law enforcement. I transitioned into education. I was a sixth grade teacher after that. And then I went into higher education. I went to higher education leadership after that. I would say my career tracking and my success tracking has been probably not the ordinary, but what is ordinary today, to be honest with you? I think a lot of people do transition at different stages of their career. And that's what mine has always been. With a focus on getting these leadership experiences along the way that have really crafted what I believe to be a really good leadership portfolio, that doesn't come without bumps and bruises along the way. And I've had my trials and tribulations like anybody else, but most of my background really centers on just people, whether they were little people, K to 12 space or middle schoolers or uh, in higher education, adult learners. I've always really enjoyed the people aspect of any position that I've ever been in. Other than that, professionally, I've also had stops along the way in nonprofit leadership, which is a, a totally different beast than the corporate side. I've enjoyed that. I've served on several different boards. I currently serve on two. My central focuses have been education, leadership, nonprofit management, and literacy. Literacy is a huge piece of what I do outside of my professional obligation. When I think about your career trajectory, there's a couple of things that I'd like to dig into. And one in particular is that you're currently a campus president for Arizona College of Nursing. And when you look at where you are now and compare it to 
the early stages of your career where you were in law enforcement and then you went into primary education, not-for-profits, and now higher education. And I might have the sequence a little off. What were the key things that you picked up along the way that's actually positioned you well for succeeding in the campus presidency role? Each stop, to be honest with you, showed me something a little bit different. I think it's important not to be in one sector. I know whenever I finished my doctorate degree, I told my dissertation chair, I said, what I want to do is actually some consulting work. And she looked at me, she says, don't do consulting. That's probably one of the worst things you can do at this time period. And I said to her, I said, yeah, but I only have one or two areas of fields that I've been in, law enforcement and education. I would love to see what leadership looked like in nonprofit. What does it look like in pharmaceutical? What does it look like in small business? It varies along the way. And I think one thing I've been very conscious is how do I gain all of these different levels of experience so I can take it along with me in this journey, in my career journey. And I think landing here as a campus president, being responsible for academics and operations and fiscal responsibility, I think every stop along the way has provided me an additional set of skills that has led me to this position. And I, that's why I think I'm an effective leader is that I just didn't get here overnight. I just, it wasn't just a quick stop or a quick rush through. I didn't become, I didn't land at the C-suite in, in a year or two. I took it, my career has been 20 plus years learning every step of the way how to, you know, craft. I think when I talk about teaching and leadership, I often refer to this as I'm not necessarily sold that anybody can do it. I think we, I think people have the capacity to do it, but I think growing leadership and growing our leaders is just as important. There's an interesting aspect of what you just described where your dissertation chair encouraged you not to broaden out your set of experiences. And I, for what it's worth, I think you took the right path because the risk is that if you're too insular within a niche or two or within an industry or two, you can be prone to groupthink that exists within that industry. And by broadening out your set of experiences uh, beyond what it was at the time, I think that uh, from a leadership perspective keeps you protected falling into the trap of group things. When we look at your background and you've, you're approaching almost two years, you're just a bit, about a year and seven, eight months in your current role. What's been the achievement that you're most proud of in your current role? Something that always sticks out in my mind is I, I've had this ability to find the right people, put them in a position of success and, and watch them grow. I think any leader, and this has been a few times in my career, my most proudest moments have been other people succeeding. People we've given a chance and opportunity and we put them in the right position and we train them up and we've given them that space to grow into their own roles and we watch them. It's almost like a parent to some degree. We're bringing them into the world and we're nurturing them and they're growing and then they go out on their own and they explore the world. And you can, that happens a lot in the work environment. And I think um, that would be probably my most rewarding experience is to watch my people grow into the exceptional professionals they are. And if they're in leadership roles, watching them develop their leadership voice. It's interesting that you mention the aspect of finding the right people, watching them grow. You've done a fair about, uh, amount of hiring throughout your career and development throughout your career. What are some of the things that stand out that position leaders to be better at hiring, better at development. I think it starts first with evaluating the internal process. We say to ourselves, we know what we're looking for. And then we go out and we bring someone in and it, it, sometimes it's a complete disaster. That's why I really champion the philosophy of 
not only should we maybe be doing a 90 day, but I think it's fair for the incoming employee to be doing a 90 day on us. Did we say and deliver on all the things that we, we promised when, when they were going through the recruiting and interviewing process? So I take a very conscious effort on ensuring that our processes and our approach to recruiting and onboarding are really solid. Because we know that any employee who comes into the work environment is they're critiquing and evaluating us the first three to six months, if not sooner, and making really first impression decisions on what they got themselves into. So I recognize the real true benefit of taking so much extra time in the beginning and not just saying to myself, I have an open position. I need it filled. It's putting a crunch on everyone that's doing extra work or more work. I put the pause to that. I say, we got to find the right, we got to find the right person for this position and that's going to excel, but we also got to be fair to them and, and provide them all the tools and the resources. There's an aspect of what you just described where your position is, hey, we should be doing a 90-day eval. We should create the space for the candidate to do a 90-day eval. I would take it one step further and say that you need to be embedding that feedback and listening and action culture throughout your entire employee life cycle. So from pre-hire to retire, you should be looking at what are these areas of the process in the employee lifecycle that we can measure. That's including your TA process. That's including your onboarding process. And the reality of it is that from a data perspective, the data shows that the stronger your onboarding process, the better your retention outcomes are going to be. So the, I love that you cited the 90-day bi-directional eval. I would make the argument that needs to be you know, week one, day 30, day 60, as many as, as often as it makes sense for your organization, that's, uh, that's going to be impactful from a retention outcomes perspective. Now you've had over a 20 year career in various elements of people leadership directly or indirectly. And I'm sure you've come across a lot of this stuff throughout your time. But when you think about all the leadership and HR myths that exist out there, what's the one that you wish would just go away? This is good. There's a bunch probably, but if I had to target one, I would say the responsibility of culture. HR is not responsible for your culture, your campus culture, your organizational culture. They may provide you resources and tools and guide you along the process. But at the end of the day, when we, I think culture, I philosophically believe culture is not a buzzword. It's an action, right? We're, we're constantly in active ways to improve and create a culture. And I think every leader, it's their responsibility to craft that, obviously in collaboration with organizational mission and philosophy and values, but then taking it one step further and executing it, putting it into play, evaluating it, managing the day-to-day -day of what culture really needs to look like. That's not the responsibility. It doesn't just land on HR's desk and HR puts in this whole way of creating culture. And I think that's something I would like to get away with. I see in a lot of spaces, we always pivot to when the culture conversation comes up, it seems like we pivot to HR. What are they doing about it? How are they regulating it? I think I'd like to see that go. Yeah, I, I really like the fact that you cited that specific example because it's when you look at reasons why teams or organizations fail, and especially when you look at it through the lens of employee turnover, two out of the five biggest reasons that an employee is going to leave an organization has to do with their direct manager. And it's not uncommon for us to see that whenever these culture conversations come up with leaders of the business unit and managers of the business unit, oh, that's an HR thing. 
And the interesting thing about that thinking, Steve Watt, who's the director of marketing at Seismic, I adapted one of the things that he often says, and his comment is that culture lives at the edges of the enterprise. So the whole idea that culture is an HR responsibility, I bristle at too, because you're shirking one of the key responsibilities that you have as a leader or manager by outsourcing that to a different business unit. That's your responsibility because Who's going to suffer when people leave your team? It's the rest of your team. And eventually, if it happens enough, it's going to be you because you'll be out of a job. I opened the show by mentioning that the future of leadership isn't one that relies on people just blindly doing what they're told. In fact, if you're looking at building a high-performance organization, you need to do a lot of different things and, uh, and probably get out of that positional authority mindset. How is that related to what you learned when it came to building high performance teams. What I learned in my career was I started out in law enforcement and law enforcement paramilitary. It's a, a command and control structure, very authoritative. You have to follow command and you, you can't really deviate. And, and, and in the military, it makes sense. We can't have 5,000 people making decisions on their own. We have to have that structure. And in law enforcement, to a certain degree, I understood it. What I didn't understand and what didn't work for me was there was no really, there was like almost zero space for understanding why decisions were made and then maybe dot, dialoguing a little bit post-decision because I did see, and there were times where decisions were made, they were made in that structure of it's my way or the highway, and then they turned out to be the wrong decision. And in that environment, what happens is we have lawsuits. We have criminal actions with with inside of the law enforcement agency because they didn't act in accordance with maybe policy procedure or someone decided to make a decision that wasn't in lock and step with how we said we were going to do things. And I felt like there was just never that ability to just have that dialogue and that conversation. I loved my law enforcement career. I had a great time. I was around exceptional people, exceptional professionals, and saw really good leadership. But I felt like it just didn't work for me. And I feel like taking that even one step further outside of law enforcement, it still does exist today. Even I've seen it even in more recent times where you're standing back and you're saying you're watching people lead and they're just, this is it. This is the way we're going to do it. There is no, there, there's no wiggle room. This is what I said. I'm the boss. I've even heard that terminology even more recently. And it's very outdated. Not to say we can't have leadership make the ultimate decision. That's what a leader does. At the end of the day, they will have to make a decision in the best interest of themselves, in the best interest of the corporation, their people. But you have to give a little bit of space. And that's what I would suggest. The space for different ways to lead people and allow people to have input and at least uh, allow them to um, collaborate in an environment that is welcoming to their ideas. I think that's what a lot of the different generations are looking for. Specifically, when we look at Generation X, Millennial, and Z, all three of them are currently in the work environment. Millennials and Zs, this is how they have been taught in primary and secondary education. This is how they're being reared, is that there is some space for dialogue. There's some space for them to contribute to the problem and more importantly, to the solution. So that's where I see things right now. There's a few interesting dynamics that I'd like to dig into. Uh, one of the interesting historical contrasts is that depending on where you are generationally, the question authority crowd became the obey my authority crowd and rely on positional authority to define their leadership. And what I'm curious about, and, and I'd like your input on, if you're still relying on positional authority 
as your primary leadership style or how you show up as a leader? What do you risk when it comes to things that you're missing out on by leveraging that leadership style as your primary emotion? You got me thinking a lot about scenarios and situations that I've been in where as a leader myself, I always say, I don't have the best ideas. I don't have all of the ideas. And I am completely blown away when I do intentionally create the space for people to collaborate, contribute, provide solutions. I'm always blown away by all of these ideas that I would have never in a million years come up with. So I think that we take that ability away. We, if, we, if we're in contempt of ourselves and we're saying it's my way and I've done it this way and it's my gut and I've been in this industry and I've done this job for 25 years and nobody knows more than me, you've already set yourself behind. You're going to be at a position of disadvantage because you have all of these people in front of you that can at least guide you possibly out of your own way. And I see a lot of leaders who have adopted or maintain this uh, position of authority, and that's how they're going to lead because they're the boss. I see them constantly getting themselves into trouble. I see them actually in my career. They have been the ones that have probably transitioned out of leadership roles the quickest because of their philosophy. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community, get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. It's interesting that you mentioned that the leaders that rely on positional authority the my way or highway types are the ones that typically burn out or at least wash out of the leadership ranks the quickest. So looking at the other side of the coin, why is it important to lead with vulnerability when it comes to creating an environment that is development focused? And I want to tie it in with a little bit of context here. You mentioned earlier on in the conversation that one of the things that you really enjoy is one, taking a chance on bringing somebody into the team and then watching them flourish and grow. How are those two things related when it comes to the leading with vulnerability, leading with authenticity, leading with openness, which is not really how we came up in the world of work when we were climbing the ranks? We have to be adaptive. We have to meet our people actually where they're at. I think it, one would probably argue the easiest way to get things done are to tell people what to do. A plus B is C, right? If you see, it's not that it might be the right way, but if you're talking about the easiest and the, the way to get it, the quickest way to get it to finish or end, it might not be the product that you want, is to just tell someone what to do. But that's, again, we're not meeting the employee and the generational groups where they actually are and where they can make the biggest 
contributions and impacts to the organization. So that just creates more change that we have. We have to be self-reflectors and practitioners on how we're actually going about it. So it's, I would say, intentionality and a conscious effort. You're, at, you're spot on when you say, you know, how we were led. We definitely, in our probably in your early career, my early career, we saw that was the standard bearer of leadership. And I think we had to, and this is another plug for Gen Xers, is we had to say, you know what? This is not how we we operate. We don't operate what's inside the company walls this way. And externally in our personal lives, this is not our philosophy. And we had to take a stance and we had to say, you know what, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. And if it's vulnerability and openness and creating space and dialogue and adopting a little bit of collaboration so people can contribute, I think we I think that's the way we needed to go. So it was evolutionary that we were going to land at this space to begin with. And I'm glad to see that we made some of those changes. We could have a whole nother conversation about how we ignored Gen Xers. We're just basically feral throughout most of our life and just had to figure stuff out. But that's a different conversation. I think one of the things that I'm curious about, and especially since this is related to the book that you wrote, if a leader is looking to be more open, vulnerable, authentic, creating an environment that has much more space for feedback, for conversation, for disagreement, what are the things that they need to do that are foundational to creating that type of environment? I think it starts with a little bit of disruption. I'm a big believer in disruption. You got to shake it up a little bit. You can't adopt the philosophy. We've always done it this way. So I think stepping out of your comfort zone and figuring out how you can change things up. I know I've had to do, do that many times. Even if, even in the, the process of adopting my own leadership philosophies along the way, I've changed. I, I didn't stay stagnant. My first leadership role was 15 plus years ago. I'm not that leader. I've had to adopt. I had to change. I had to recognize. So I think disruption... The openness to change, I, I mentioned this earlier, and this is something with, as an educator, we constantly are advocating becoming a, a self-reflector. We promote this a lot in, from an educational standpoint, evaluating constantly what we're doing in the classroom. So I, I've adopted that. I take time out of my schedule just to reflect on the semester. What did we get right? What did we agree upon? How are we going to change it? What are the tools and resources required to change it? And I think taking it, looking at that lens of it and putting it into a, a leadership framework, we should constantly be doing that. What styles have I used? What is required with the people that are in front of me, the new people that are coming on board, the people that I've had here for a period of time? Uh, do I need to make these adjustments? Are they practical? What will, what does change management entail with this? Because people are just, humans are just reluctant to change to begin with. So there's, I think, a lot to that. That's a loaded question. I think that could be a whole podcast in itself is just drilling down on all of those elements. But I think if you're, you're true to yourself and you're an authentic leader, you're constantly evaluating you know, how you're, you're, you're tackling leadership to begin with. There's a lot in what you mentioned that I think is usable across a number of different contexts. But the one thing that stood out to me is one of the gaps that I often see when I talk to leaders of all stripes is how misused one-on-ones are in most organizations. A lot of leaders and a lot of organizations use one-on-ones as a status report or a project check-in. All of those questions that you asked from the self-reflection side of the equation can be modified slightly and applied to what a real one-on-one -on -one looks like. 
because those are the things that you need to be talking about during your one-on-one times to really connect with the people that report into you and create that communication culture. So when we're looking at where do people get started, asking those questions to yourself are certainly is certainly critical, but then bringing that, that Socratic method or that curiosity into your team dynamics and team relationships is critical as well. Robert, we've covered a ton of ground and I think we've done a pretty decent job of explaining why we need to do this and what needs to be done. The thing that I'm missing right now is how do you get started? There are going to be listeners that are hearing this and want to build this type of culture. It's the whole eating an elephant thing. How do you actually get started with this? I'm often asked about my leadership philosophy and, and my style. We always get that as leaders, right? Well, what's your style? And it's a, it's definitely evolved. I was very, um, I was a participative leader, collaborative leader, team-based leader, loved all of those approaches. And then not too long ago, and this was the genesis of Uh, my research in the book was someone asked me that question and I just blurted out, you know what? I lead like a Gen Xer. That's how I lead. I lead like a Gen Xer. And they caught them off guard. They're like, what does that mean? And it was the first time I've ever blurted out these three concepts. And here's what they are. Hire good people. Put so much time, energy, and investment into that process, the recruiting process and the hiring process. Identify the best people that you can possibly bring into your organization. And the second thing is support them and train them. Out of the gate, what are the onboarding philosophies, practices, best approaches, scripted measures that you do to make sure that they are successful at the beginning from the moment they walk in the door. And the most important thing is if we're hiring great people, if we're training them and supporting them, get out of their way. Why are we putting up barrier after barrier for them to be successful? Now that sounds very simple, three approaches, but this goes back to my research. Gen Xers simplify things. They don't complicate things. They don't believe in taking a process and putting extra steps in just to create bureaucracy, inertia, and all of these things. What they believe is that we can simplify this process and we can get people moving and marshalling people in the right direction. So I know that it sounds like that that can't just be it. We know it's not just it. We know that finding good talent, hiring good talent takes a lot of energy, work, and resources. We know that bringing them on and onboarding them does that. But I think the actual biggest challenge isn't step one and step two. It's step three. Leaders, managers, and even organizational structure getting in the way of the people doing the job. That is primary a lot. Whenever I get feedback from specifically mid-managers, is why do we have these processes and why do we have all of these things that prevent me, and they'll use that word, prevent me from doing the job. And obviously this is just, that's a blanket statement and it's, an abs- it's not an absolute, it doesn't apply everywhere, but it does allow a leader to reflect and to say, am I in the way of progress? And I think that's an important consideration. That's a really solid framework. And I think one of the things that I can anticipate when somebody is listening to, especially that last bit, which you said is the most important, getting out of the way. Somebody's going to be out there and there's going to be a lot of people maybe that is out there and say, hey, I, Dr. D, I get the whole get out of the way bit. How am I supposed to keep people accountable or hold people accountable if I'm not monitoring things? How would you respond to that? Get out of the way isn't totally removing yourself from the picture. A philosophy that I really, I think is very important and it comes from the military is trust, but verify, trust, but verify. So we're not saying you are absent 
you're an absentee or a laissez-faire leader, you're just going to be not in the picture, you're going to lead and you're going to lead from the front. But what you're not going to do is you're going to constantly be in your people's office, pulling them out of uh, assignments, constantly barraging them with meetings, being a meeting-driven organization where they can't get the work done. Or I take a page out of this, being a helicopter leader. That's a phrase we get from the K-12 space, helicopter parenting. We have helicopter leaders where they're just over their people constantly and they're not giving them the space and the opportunity to show us, demonstrate why we hired you in the first place. And that's all I'm saying. So I have a couple of different phrases that are used for what you described. So I think on the first bit, you know, you mentioned meetings, which are a point of frustration for a lot of people out there. And there's plenty of people that I've talked to who have mentioned that I have so many meetings in a day, I don't know when I'm going to get work done. So the question that leaders need to be asking is, could this meeting have been an email? And you referenced helicopter leader. I call it seagull leadership. You fly in, crap all over the place and fly out after you made a big mess. So don't do either one of those. Well, ask yourself the question, could this have been an email? And don't be a seagull. So really great stuff, Robert. If uh, people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to to get in touch with you and uh, move this forward? Obviously, on my socials, I'm on Twitter at at Definis. And then also on LinkedIn under Robert DeFinis. And then my website, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, drdefinis.com. And there's a contact form there. We can have a chat. Definitely open to conversations. I love just always talking. I could feel like I could be on here forever because these are important topics. These are things that are really important to, to our industry and our trade as leaders. So I'm always open just to even just having conversation and dialogue. So feel free to reach out. I appreciate you hanging out with us and, and sharing your insights. When I think about this conversation and look at the things that stood out for me, I think one of the things that you mentioned early on is really critical for us to emphasize. And that's the idea or the myth that Culture is owned by HR. Culture is actually owned by every single person in the organization. And the only way that you can make sure that you actually have a viable culture is look for the people that are the furthest away from the C-suite and evaluate how they behave. If they're living your mission, vision, and values, then you know that you've executed well on your culture. And if you're a leader that outsources your culture responsibilities to HR, you're probably dealing with some massive turnover as a result of you not taking responsibility and ownership for the culture. The other aspect that stands out to me about this conversation is that if you're a leader and you're looking at these things from a binary lens, I can't have an accountability culture if I'm not monitoring everything. I can't have a participatory leadership culture because that's going to take accountability out of my hands. That's an outdated way of thinking as well. When you look at the world of work, and specifically when you look at the demographics that make up the world of work and the largest cohorts of the employee landscape, they're going to make their employment decisions based on how collaborative, inclusive, and how an organization handles productive conflict with the goal of moving things forward. So if you're not creating that sort of culture, you're going to have a hard time finding the right talent And obviously you're going to have uh, problems developing that talent. So that's going to lead to a cascade of failure that is going to be on your hands because you're the leader and that's your responsibility. So Robert, really great conversation. Appreciate you hanging out with us. I learned a ton from it. For those of you who are listening to this episode, let us know what you thought of the conversation and tune in next time where we'll have another great leader joining us 
to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.